My name is Chuck Betters. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new to our church, many times we have eight to 10 new people who sign in every week. So I just want to warmly welcome you here. I'm just so glad that you're here, that you chose to worship with us this morning. If you want to take your Bibles out, we're going to be in a bunch of different passages. John chapter 20 is a passage we're going to be looking at a little bit later on, if you want to turn to that, or you can use your device, or you can follow along on the screen, or just listen as the word is read. We're in a series called God-Sized Conversations, and I want to read to you the question that was submitted that we're going to tackle this morning. Our faith is just that, someone wrote. Complete faith. None of us knows beyond doubt what it is in the Bible that it actually happened. We do not know for certain if it's true. Could it all be parables and not meant to be understood literally? Could it all be a storybook? Let's face it, none of us were around when these events happened. I personally do have faith. I'm not trying to be cynical. I simply want to know if my thoughts are shared by anyone else. What is the proof? How do we know that it's true? Now, for some of you, you may tune out a little bit at this point because you're thinking, well, I already know it's true. I have faith, and I just wish everybody else would have faith, and it's kind of irritating that other people don't have faith. How can they, how, why can't they see, et cetera, et cetera? So this question isn't that important. However, in the scriptures, we're told again and again that this question is incredibly important. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 15, he, he said these incredible words. He said to honor Christ in your hearts, to revere him in your hearts. And then he said this, he said, always be ready, always be prepared to lodge a defense, to make a defense when people ask about the hope that's in you. So when people see you and they see the hope that's in you, when they see that you are different, and hopefully people are seeing that, wouldn't that be nice if people said, you know, what's different about you? What hope do you have? This hope that you have, tell me about it. And then Peter says to do it with gentleness and respect. So that means gentleness, that means that we don't jam it down people's throats. And respect, that means that we don't get on social media and we post YouTube clips and things like that that says things like, you know, watch as this religious professor Christian schools this atheist. You know, that's not respectful. So Peter gives it to us and he tells us this is very important. So you may have strong faith, praise God, but what about your children? What about your grandchildren? What about your friends who are asking you about the hope that is in you? We have to be prepared to give this defense. How can we know? And what is the defense we should be prepared to give? There's a lot of great answers to this. I can't even scrape the surface this morning. I can only share with you the defense that I give. I can only share with you what I've worked through in my own life and in my own heart, that I have wrestled with my faith ever since I was a little boy. This isn't something that I, that I look at and I just accept. It's something that I've, I've wrestled with. It's not something that I think is, is weird. I don't think it's a holy roller thing or it's a naive thing. It's something that I believe is very reasonable and able to be understood. So I want to give you the one response that's proved the most helpful to me, at least some of it. And I'm gonna speak from here on out as if you are someone who is maybe doubting your faith or maybe you're exploring Christianity or maybe you are someone who is far away from God right now. 
And I want to have this conversation with you and show you how I will approach this idea of knowing, this idea of knowing. Listen, so we can only know something if it's revealed to us. And that goes for everything. If something's revealed to us, we can know it. And so God reveals to us his truth in two different ways, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation and special revelation. General revelation is truth that is available to everyone. It's truth that we can see through nature. It's the truth that we can see when we look up in the night sky, we can see the stars, and when we study science and we can see how vast the universe is, it's truth that's available to us when we see things like pregnancy, that miracle of pregnancy and childbirth, when we look at plant life and the complexity of it, when we study science and atoms and things like that. This is general revelation, but it goes further than that. It's the way that man creates. So it's hearing a symphony that's created by a man who was made in the image of God. It's when we have feelings and emotions and, and seeing how God created us. And we are being revealed at that point. God is revealing to us. Nature is speaking to us. Psalm 19, one through two says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, it pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The psalmist is saying that literally the sky speaks to us, pours forth speech, reveals to us, to all of us, that there has to be a creator God. 17th century astronomer Johannes Kepler, he was troubled by his friend who denied the existence of God and maintained that the universe just came into existence by itself. So Kepler, he constructs this model of our solar system. He puts it in his living room, he invites his friend over, and when his friend saw his friend's like, how beautiful, who made this? And Kepler responded, no one, it made itself. And his friend said, nonsense, something so beautiful couldn't have just come into existence by itself. Tell me who made it. And then Kepler said, friend, you say that this little toy cannot make itself. It is but a weak imitation of the great universe, which I understand that you do believe came into existence by itself. Psalm 14, 1 and 53, 1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is a philosopher who lived in the 1600s, one of the most brilliant people to ever walk planet earth. His name is Rene Descartes. And Rene Descartes was a philosopher, he was a scientist, he's a mathematician. And so what philosophers do, of course, and what he would do is he would just study and study and study. He would study Aristotle and Plato and all of the great thinkers of his day. And they're always trying to get to the basest question. And the basest answer is what is truth? Why are we here? What is consciousness? Why do we exist? How do we exist? And so he was frustrated by this question. So he decided that he was going to do a hard reset on his mind. He was gonna to try to force himself to set aside everything that he'd ever learned, everything he'd ever heard, and to pretend, if you will, that his heart and his mind and his soul was reset, and he was gonna close his eyes and open them as if he was being conscious for the very first time. And then he was gonna see where that led. 
So he does this, and then we get this famous saying. He closes his eyes, he opens them, and then he says this. I think, therefore I am. In other words, I exist. And his idea was that from there, he said, it only took a split second to look around after he knows he exists, to look around, to see creation, to see people, to see the universe, to see whatever was really in front of him at that moment, to get to God, to get to a creator God. And he believed. And he was one of the most brilliant men to walk the earth. I think, therefore, I am. And then he easily gets to the point that there has to be a God that created this. General revelation. Romans 1, 19 through 20 says this. What can be known about God is plain to them, Paul said. Because God has shown it to us. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. General revelation renders man without excuse. Paul says later that they suppress the truth, that we, we not they, we suppress the truth in our hearts, that we suppress it because we want to do what we want to do. So we tamp it down, even though we can see it all around us. There's really no such thing as an atheist, according to Scripture. And that might not sound very respectful to some of you, but Scripture teaches that all of us know in our hearts, just by looking around, that there has to be a God. That's not a stretch to say that. And so that's where I'll start with people. And that's what I'm sharing with you this morning. But that's not enough. Because to have general revelation and to be able to say there has to be a creator God is basically saying there is a vague God or designer or whatever, some sort of being that created all this. That's not necessarily saying it's the God of the Bible. It's saying there is a creator. That's what general revelation reveals to us. That's where the second aspect comes in, special revelation. So general revelation is natural Special revelation is supernatural. Special revelation is what is revealed to us in the scriptures. It's what's revealed to us in this book. This book is supernatural. It is the direct words of God given to us. It is special revelation. The Bible is what we need to know what the plan of salvation is. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete for every good work. Scripture is how God has revealed to us, not in his creation, but in his plan of salvation. I read it earlier, Hebrews 4, 12. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living. It sinks deep into our hearts. Friends, many times when I talk to people, and even in my own life, when I'm doubting, when I have those doubts, I ask myself and I ask my friends, how much are you in the word of God? How much are you living in special revelation and feasting on the supernatural that he's given to us? And most of the time, it's not that much when we have these doubts. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, he was in the top five. 
And he was, as a young man, he was decadent. He did whatever he wanted to do. He wrote a book later on called Confessions, where he basically detailed all of his misdeeds. And so this is another guy who just searched religions. He searched cults. He searched math and science and the arts. He tried it all. His mother, the whole time, is praying for him. It's incredible. Go study that, the way his mother prayed for her son. And she said, "Someone, a son who is, has that many prayers cannot be lost. And so Augustine is searching and searching, bouncing from one religion to another, a brilliant man. And one day he said, he was sitting in a garden, and he hears a voice of a little girl saying, take up and read. Take up and read. And he's like, read what? And he looks there on the table, and there's a Bible. He takes it up, he reads it, he goes to Romans chapter 13, he reads a few verses, and he's converted on the spot. And the rest is history. One of the greatest of all the church fathers is converted on the spot. Take up and read. William Tyndale, who's famous for his translation of the Bible into English, was right in saying this, a servant boy with the Bible. A servant boy who immerses himself in the Bible would know more about God than the most learned pastor who basically ignores it. The ultimate form of revelation happens through the word of God. And here is the pinnacle of this special revelation. Here's the reason why we have the scriptures in the first place. Because it all points to Jesus, all of it. The ultimate form of special revelation is all about the person of Jesus. Every page, every chapter, every verse, all points to Jesus. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Special revelation, all points to Jesus. So many times we try to prove God to other people, maybe even to ourselves, by sticking in the realm of general revelation exclusively. When we need to get into the realm of special revelation, we need to get into the realm of the God-man, of Jesus, a very personal thing. We need to be confronted, we need to wrestle with Jesus and his claims. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. So that's how he would reveal himself is through the prophets in the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created all things. Martin Luther said this, he said that Jesus is the center and the circumference of the Bible the center and the circumference. He said that he is the fundamental content of the Bible. To miss Jesus is to miss special revelation, is to miss the Bible. Now listen, and this is another step that I'll take when I speak to somebody who's having doubts or when I'm trying to warm my own heart in my own doubts. General revelation's easy. Scripture says that it renders man without excuse, that everybody can see it. We can all see it. We can all look around and we can see this wondrous thing around us. How did it come into existence? I mean, we just see it, okay? We all see it. So we all see it. We all know in our hearts that there has to be something behind that, that it didn't just pop into existence. That's what general revelation is. Special revelation, though, is hard. 
Because special revelation has to do with Jesus. And Jesus is an offense to us. The grace of Jesus is an offense to us. Jesus is a stumbling block to us. Talking about the God-man and who was he? And was he really God? I mean, this is a guy. This is a dude. Walks on earth. There's Jesus. He's God. A God-man. How can we know that this Jesus thing is true is a very, very fair question. There's many ways. I'm going to give you one. I could give you a lot more, but there's one way that I always go to in my own heart and when I'm sharing with others and to answer the original question, because this is key. One way that we can know, I'm always drawn back to the apostles of Jesus. The apostles were the former disciples, so there's 12 disciples. They become apostles because they saw the risen Christ. These were the guys who were the closest followers of Jesus. I want you to think about it. You know, put yourself back then. We have to get the context of it. These guys, these apostles, they were longing for a Messiah. Now, we love to sing about a Messiah, but we don't really know what it is many times. This Messiah was the one that would deliver them from Rome. It was a military man they were looking for. This was a man who would come and would sit on David's throne, King David's throne, would restore Israel to its former glory, would free them from Rome. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a military leader, a Messiah. So put yourself in Peter's position, one of his closest disciples. So here he is on the night that Jesus is arrested in the garden. And Peter gets a bad rap because we talk about what? That he denied Jesus three times. We say, well, he was cowardly. He wasn't cowardly at all. So when they come, when the temple guard comes to arrest Jesus with their swords ready to fight, what does Peter do? He pulls out his sword and he chops off the ear of one of the guards. That's hardly a coward. He was ready to fight. He was ready to fight for his military Messiah. This is when the kingdom had come for Peter. He was ready to fight. He wanted Jesus to use his powers. And what did Jesus say? Put away your little sword there, Peter. You know, just put it away. And then he picks up this ear and puts it back on the guy's head. So Peter leaves, basically saying, this isn't the guy I thought he was. Why would I want to die alongside him? A dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. So when he's asked and he denies him, I mean, I think there's a deeply emotional, personal connection there because he does weep, but he's not really being cowardly. He's basically giving up the ghost on it. This wasn't what they had expected. This wasn't who they expected. So Jesus dies, and what do they do? What do the disciples do? They scatter. They hide. They go back to being fishermen. A dead Messiah was no Messiah at all. They thought maybe Jesus was wrong or he was wrong. All these guys, if you study each of these apostles, they all had different agendas, very deep-seated cultural agendas for what they wanted Jesus to be. Political, cultural, Rome, Israel, etc. There was all these different issues that they each had. And so when Jesus dies, they hide. When the women come and say he's risen, they don't believe. So these disciples are in hiding. These guys who came from all these different backgrounds had all these weird agendas. They see the risen Christ. So in John chapter 20, verse 24, this is after Jesus has been risen from the dead, we have this story of doubting Thomas, this poor guy. 
Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, so eight days pass, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, literally barred shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him these amazing words, my Lord and my God. He believed, my Lord and my God. These men, listen, they gave the rest of their lives to spreading the message of Jesus. They gave the rest of their lives. Why would these men from these diverse backgrounds all go and dedicate their lives, put their families all in? These guys who had all these weird agendas that were deep-seated, that didn't, weren't really congruent with this message of Jesus at all. Why would they all go and put their lives on the line and spend the rest of their lives witnessing to Jesus? Why would they die for their faith if it wasn't true? Now I can hear some of you in your hearts saying, well, what about the radical Islamists? What about the ones who flew planes into the World Trade Center? And there's people who give up their lives every day for their faith that's not true. The disciples are different. They are different. They're the only ones in history that have this claim. They would have been not only dying for their faith that wasn't true, but they would have known they would have known that they were dying for a lie. Men don't do that. Maybe one of them or two of them that were maybe crazy, but not these 12 guys from all different backgrounds. They went and they spent decades, the rest of their lives, these guys who were in hiding, these guys who doubted, they went and they shared their faith. Amazing. That to me is very remarkable. Think about the way they died. I want you to stop and think about what they would have been giving up and the way, just the way they died. Peter, he was crucified upside down at his request because he didn't want to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was crucified. He said, I'm not worthy to have that. Andrew, this is incredible. Andrew was also crucified. He was a missionary to modern day Russia. And so eventually he was crucified and many times when guys were crucified, they would lose their minds. He didn't lose his mind, his mind stayed sharp. For three days, tradition tells us, and it's faithful tradition, it's reliable, that he, from the cross, as he's being crucified, for three days, he's preaching the gospel, pleading with people who walk by to come to faith in Jesus. I mean, I just want you to imagine just their wives, okay? Just imagine their wives allowing all this to go on, their families allowing all this to go on, all of them, all 12, when it was a lie, if it was a lie, because it wasn't a lie. It wasn't a lie. Thomas, the doubter, was convinced. So much so he was tortured with red hot plates. He was put into a furnace and he was speared to death. Bartholomew was severely tortured, beaten with rods, 
whipped, crucified, and then axed to death. He would have known he was dying for a lie. Simon and Thaddeus were beaten to death and crucified. Matthew was beheaded. It goes on and on and on. The apostle Paul was beheaded, and he is an enigma in and of himself. He is a proof of Christianity right there. Here's a Pharisee. Here's a guy who was secure, a man who was persecuting Christians. He was wealthy. He was brilliant. He had the world in his hands. And what did he do? He gave it all up. Why? Because Jesus, the risen Lord, appeared to him. So we have the disciples. But there's something we can't miss about these guys. They don't just consider their horrible deaths. Don't just consider their horrible deaths. I want you to consider the change in their lives that was overnight. These disciples, these guys who had been knuckleheads with Jesus for three years, these guys, Peter, always putting his foot in his mouth, always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, always being unclear, always being stubborn, never really truly getting it, never able to really articulate Jesus' message, suddenly are able to do it. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. He's out in the open. He's on the street. He's proclaiming this out in the open. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. It's beautiful writing. Loosing the pangs of death. Loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it, by death. Aren't you thankful that Jesus wasn't held by death? Aren't you thankful for that? I am. This is what Peter was able to do now. Why? Because he saw Jesus alive, partly. But the real reason that Peter was able to do this was because he had the Holy Spirit of Christ inside of him. He had that Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He had that. And you know what? Listen, that is the best proof of Christianity that we have. The best proof is when the Holy Spirit of Jesus lives inside of you, lives inside of me, lives inside of us as a church, and people see that, and they see a changed life, a changed heart, and they want to ask us about the hope that resides within us. They can't wait to find out when Jesus flows out of you. When Jesus flows out of you by being filled with his Holy Spirit, I mean, how do you get filled with this Holy Spirit? By immersing yourself in the scriptures where he speaks to us. You don't get immersed with Jesus and the Holy Spirit through your own power, through your own trying. You don't deepen your faith through your own power, not by power, not by might, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord. Trying to believe in your own strength is confusing, it's exhausting. Take up and read, as was said to Augustine, that's where the Holy Spirit of Jesus dwells richly. That's where he dwells richly. And then when that happens, when you're feeding on the word of God, the ministry of Jesus begins flowing out of you. The greatest proof of Christianity are the changed lives of those of us who know him. And the way we know our lives have been fully changed is not whether or not we say we believe it. 
Not whether or not we have this as like a fire escape, just in case, you know, I'm going to say I'm, I'm a Christian and believe in God and all that. Not because we say we're going to be godly or whatever it is. It's not even whether we go to church. The way we know our lives have truly been changed is when our purpose and when our mission changes. That's when we know. When Jesus' mission becomes our mission. That's the greatest proof. And what is our mission? What was Jesus' mission? And what is the mission he gave to us? To live to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. That's the only reason we are here. The only mission that we have as Christians is the mission that Jesus gave us. And when we radically live out of that mission, we are proof, living proof to our children, to our grandchildren, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, even to ourselves, that Christianity is true. To live to reach all people with nothing but Jesus, that is in, isn't only reach church's mission, that's the mission of God. That's the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples. What did the Father send Jesus to do? What was his mission? Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to what? To seek and to save the lost. Jesus told us that his mission, to seek and save the lost, was to become our mission. In verse 21 in John 20, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And then he says it. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you to seek and save the lost. That's our mission, to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. And he doesn't leave us on our own. He gives us his own Holy Spirit. That's why he was able to say that we can even do greater things than even Jesus did because of his Holy Spirit residing in us. He doesn't leave us on our own. In verse 22, he says this, breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul calls this Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit of Christ. In Galatians 4, Paul says this is the Holy Spirit of the Son, of Jesus. The apostles are emboldened. They're able to clearly and boldly and passionately share Jesus because Jesus is residing right inside of them and just flowing out because they knew the mission. They were on mission their mission was nothing but Jesus. Nothing could stop them. And they stood out in the open and boldly proclaimed the word of God. The best proof of Christianity is a group of people on fire for that mission. A group of people who won't be swayed to the left or the right. The problem with the church today is that we are off mission. We're about, many times, anything but Jesus. We are here to seek and save the lost. The greatest proof of Christianity is that they see that in us in the world, period. That's it. Our mission is not to be culture warriors. That's not why we're here. Our mission isn't even to be champions for God. Our mission isn't to get caught up in whatever social issue happens to be on Fox News or CNN that week or what controversy is happening. Our mission isn't to come into church to get our own preferences, our own music, to be filled in my own way, whether we have drums or piano, whether it's loud or soft, whether the lights are on or the lights are off, whether the color is blue or the color is black or white or whatever it is. That's not our mission either. Our mission is not to play identity politics. 
and to get caught up in all these issues related to race and all these other things. Our mission isn't to elect a certain candidate so that that guy will put our guy on the Supreme Court of a nation, of a government that is temporary. Our mission isn't to tell everyone how wrong they are. Our mission isn't to tell everyone what we are against. Our mission, listen, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our mission isn't built on people's approval, on a bull market, on a hot romance, on successful kids, on more money, or on less suffering. Our mission is to live to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. We are here to tell others how a wretch like me was once lost and is now found. This is how people will know it's true. We are here to be one beggar showing other beggars where we found bread. We are here to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. Not to our favorite Christian football player, not to our favorite Christian pastor, not to our favorite Christian celebrity, not to our favorite politician, but to Jesus. That is what we are called to be conformed to. We are here to be so enamored and interested and obsessed with Jesus that we love each other so well that the community is pressing their noses up against these four windows, even though the shades are drawn, and they want to see what the heck is going on in here. We are here to become more and more filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ. We are here to tell people of this hope that resides in us. We are here so that people will actually see that hope for themselves and ask us about it. We are here to tell people of this hope that nothing will separate us from his love. That nothing will take you out of his hand. That nothing will write you out of his book. That nothing will write you out of his story. We're here to proclaim to people that in Jesus... Our past is forgiven, that there's more mercy and grace and forgiveness and pardon in Jesus than there is sin in all of us. There's enough to go around, that our present is in God's control, that our future is beyond all we could ever ask or think, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, it hasn't entered into our hearts, the things that God has prepared. We are here to tell people about that. We're here to proclaim to people that in Jesus, that he didn't make a token sacrifice for us, that he paid it all, that it is finished, that the treadmills of life have been closed, that we are here by grace alone, we're saved by grace alone, that our faith is a gift from God. We're here to proclaim that there's no catch when it comes to Jesus. There's no qualification that Jesus' stories of extravagant grace include no catch, no loophole, no disqualifying us from God's love. That this story is too good to be true. And if we don't leave here saying, you know what, that seemed too good to be true, then we haven't heard the gospel. Because it is too good to be true from a human perspective. We have one message. We don't need to fix it. We don't need to change it. We don't need to massage it. We don't need to abandon it. We don't need to say that we get it already. Our one message and the way people will truly know is when they see us on fire for the same mission that Jesus gave to us, to live to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. If you're experiencing doubt, I, I want to empathize with you. 
I mean, I wonder too at times. I wonder too many times if I'm preaching up here, many times I'll be thinking about it then at some level. Calvin said, and I'm not, you know, full-on Calvin guy. I'm more of a Luther guy, but I'll quote Calvin. He's good too. He said this. He said, we're all partially agnostics. That means somebody who's not quite sure if it's all true. We're all partially agnostics until the day that we die and we see Jesus. And there's even grace for that. Jesus said at the end of this conversation with Thomas, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, I see it, I believe. Jesus says these amazing words to us. He said, you guys have seen me and you believe. And they said, blessed are those who have not seen, but still believe. That's us, friends. That's us. There's grace even for that. So I empathize with you if you're struggling to know if it's true. But listen, God may even use your doubt, your extreme doubt, to bless someone else, to speak into someone else's life. Don't be afraid, parents, to speak that into your children's lives and to wrestle alongside them with their doubts. Thomas was a disciple who doubted, but think about it. His doubt accomplished so much. Perhaps none other than Thomas is responsible for more doubters coming to faith in Jesus over time of history. He becomes one of us. Just because you wrestle with doubts, it doesn't mean you don't believe. We grow stronger in our faith, and our faith grows deeper and stronger by asking deep, honest questions and growing and wrestling through those answers. That's how we grow deeper. And remember that our faith, at the end of the day, is a gift from God. It's not something that we do and muster up. It's implanted in us. It's a gift from God. I also want to say one last thing. If you're struggling with your faith, if you're here, maybe you're visiting, you're listening to all this, and you're like, mm, I don't know, or whatever, or maybe you're a young person, you know, a young person, young people leave churches in droves. I mean, it's crazy. We're so blessed here to have so many young people among us. But if you're a young person or, or whatever, whatever's going on and you're struggling in your faith, the worst thing you can do is say this, I don't believe, so I really don't belong. I'm leaving. If you are experiencing doubt, don't run away from the church. Listen, do this. Let the church believe for you. The church's faith can take it for a while. The faith of the martyrs, the faith of the people around you, we can take it. Let the church believe for you. You're part of the body of Christ. Let the apostles we spoke of earlier, these martyrs who gave their lives because they believed so strongly in Jesus, believe for you for a while, for a season. Are you able to give a defense are you asked at all about the hope that is in you? Do you know Jesus? If you wrestled with this, let's pray together.